welcome to Between the Liars with Ryan, Josh. Hello, everyone. Marcelo. Hey, everyone. And so we're missing Austin today, and I've invited a brand new guest on, which I'll get to in just a moment here, but I've realized we're going to have some problems with clarity because today we're going to have two Joshes on the show. So if you will please... I'm multiplying. Help me welcome, for the sake of today's discussion, we're going to be referring to him as Little Josh Sanders. Little Josh Sanders, nothing to do with his height whatsoever. But Josh, thank you for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me, Ryan. Uh, for those who have been keeping up with us, we like to have fun on this show and have a great time. So had to do it to you, Josh. All right. So Josh, why don't you tell us briefly what you're doing now as an actual introduction, but thank you for joining us. <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Josh. I'm on a podcast. Uh, I went to Murray <laughs> and now I work in IT. Perfect. Yeah. Josh was actually the first debater I ever coached when I started coaching at Murray State University. So lots of history there. So today we're going to be talking about the national budget in America and why every few months there is a lingering threat of a government shutdown but before we do that we've got some announcements josh lil josh where can they find us on social media so they can find us on instagram uh, our facebook page twitter youtube and we are now on tiktok we will be live streaming now uh, saturdays at noon central yeah and look at this we've actually pulled that off on noon central again two weeks in a row we've done it we might actually have something here i mean probably not something's going to happen i just made it happen i've just actualized it through saying that i'm sorry everyone but we also you know are live streaming on our facebook page and on our youtube and of course uploading our episodes to Spotify and other streaming locations as we can. As always, remember that you can find our merch on Redbubble. We'll have it applied to a ton of different stuff, mugs and stuffs, all certain types of things they do over there. Be sure to go check it out if you are interested. And with that, I will pass it over to Marcel to talk about our wonderful music. Thank you. And as have you noticed, for the past few weeks, we've had new music. Uh, it's courtesy of Andrew Hensley over at Secret Spike Studio 865 Audio. He's got a hot new single out titled Footprints, and it's available now on all major streaming platforms. So be sure to check it out. Thank you so much, Andrew. The music is very, very awesome, and I can't say no good things about it. We also, uh, I heard recently, following his Instagram page at Pinky Toe Music, they're actually going to be releasing a whole album. So if you like jazz synth type music, and it's really nice background music while you study, that'll be dropping here, I think it's like in the next week or two. So you can also look forward to that. But yes, check them out. So let's preview the current situation and then we'll kind of move into what is the government shutdown, which we have avoided for now. I uh, will see how that continues. But the current situation is that every year Congress has to agree on the amount of money we can take out or borrow to fund the government. If they can't agree and vote to raise the debt ceiling and allow us to take out more money, more debt, then they're going to have a shutdown. So if they can't pass that, basically they revert to only the bare essentials because you can't operate without money or at least approve money. So that's kind of where we digress to. So Josh, little Josh, why don't you talk to us a little bit about uh, the Senate vote on that? Uh, so Senate recently voted to have a filibuster proof uh, vote on this. So they can't filibuster this for a long period of time. They passed that on a simple majority. And so the Senate voted to have the filibuster proof vote on raising the debt ceiling uh, by 50 plus one. Uh, so by December 15th, which is this upcoming Wednesday, they have to vote to raise that debt ceiling that we currently have. So basically they had the pre-vote, which is things that have to do with debt um, and money usually take two thirds, right? So you can't just have the bare majority, but because they voted to not have that be the case this time around, it's now as long as the Democrats stay within their party, get all 50, plus they have Vice President uh, Kamala Harris come in and vote, they can raise it. 
So what we're going to look at is the Democrats are projecting to raise this debt ceiling uh, by about $2 trillion uh, over what it currently is now. And it doesn't allow for new spending specifically. So it's not like this is just a brand new bill inherently. So you have the debt ceiling, which they're trying to raise. So that way they can also then raise the spending bill that they're having as well. It makes up for that difference between taxing and spending that we currently have. Yeah. So basically what has happened, and even give a, like a grander history, is since the Cold War reached its peak with Ronald Reagan... And that's when we started massively spending hundreds of billions of dollars on our uh, on our military. And our government has been basically running in the red ever since. And we haven't had a government budget that funded itself through taxation and through diligent spending since Bill Clinton's budget. Bill Clinton was for a very like year and a half, two year time period able to get us to where the United States government was actually not going into debt, which was the first time since Reagan. And since Clinton and in that short period of time of Clinton's presidency, it has not yet happened again. So that's always why you see that national debt number going up because of this balance of passing new spending bills and this passing of tax cuts. So like what we saw in Reagan, dramatically increasing the military spending, dramatically lowering the taxes. Saw something similar play out a little bit in the Trump administration where the government spending kept coming up. Taxes came down again. Spending stayed where it was. Revenue stayed, you know, went down more debt. But there's this common agreement our government has of, well, this is the limit of the debt. And it's basically uh, meant to serve as a legislative motivator to help them balance the budget and to get our government acting in a solvent fashion. However, as we can clearly see, it's not that effective. I'm sure you You've probably heard about the debt multiple times over the last couple of months, and that is because this vote was actually so supposed to take place almost exactly a month ago. And what wound up happening was the House Democrats decided that if the Senate was not going to agree to pass the Build Back Better package, meaning it was tied up with Mansion and Cinema refusing to vote for that in the Senate, then the House was not going to vote on raising the debt ceiling. So because of that, they kind of put themselves in this box where they wound up uh, running too close to the deadline and they weren't able to pass it. So then what happened was the Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell got uh, some of the Republicans to work with the Senate Democrats to temporarily fund the government. They didn't allow themselves to be attached to raising it for the entirety of the year, but they did give them a month and basically said, you all figure this out. We'll, we'll fund the government for a month so we don't get a shutdown because that would have been very damaging for the Republicans politically. Unfortunately, what winds up happening is everyone gets concerned about what is their image going to look like especially as we roll up on midterms, uh, because what tends to happen is the voters take out their anger when <laughs> when they see any negative impact when they get to the polls. Uh, Marcelo, your thoughts on this? But, but usually I would say that the voters take out sort of their anger on the party in power. At least, you know, that's, I feel yeah. like that's how I see it. That's like, true. Right now, and we've talked about it, you know, we've talked about Build Back Better before, and, um, you know, my opinion on it is basically the same. I would like it to pass, and, you know, I hope it passes uh, by Christmas you know, little Christmas wish. But I think that whatever's happening right now, and like this includes also the depth of the conversation, is that the more time is wasted and the more time is spent on all of these things, uh, Americans are just very like, actually, you know, this is the Democrats' fault, you know? Like we elected Joe Biden to do this and then this is not happening. I feel like at least, you know, comparatively, people tend to blame the party who was like at the top of the ticket, even if, you know, half of our government is from the other party. 
And it is worth noting that when a shutdown happens, it isn't an immediate end of the day or in, you know, nightmare scenario necessarily. Do a lot of people get really negatively impacted? Yes. And we'll get, in, get into them a bit after we get it past this context. But for a, even just a bit more of, of the history, there have been several prolo uh, prolonged um, government shutdowns. The longest and most infamous one was where the Republicans in the Senate and the House had passed legislation to raise the debt ceiling, but they were not willing to fund Donald Trump's border wall. And so he wouldn't sign it. And so that actually ended up, you know, looking very bad from a politics point of view, as Marcel pointed out, they kind of people take their anger out at the ruling party. But here was the party in power having its legislative and executive not be able to a degree and causing its own government to deadlock itself in this fashion. We saw Bill Clinton also had a shutdown of 21 days coming at the second longest. The third longest was Jimmy Carter at 17 days and Obama had a shutdown for 16 days. So this has happened before and there are negative consequences, but it doesn't immediately make all of the negative consequences go into effect right away. However, for a lot of families and for a lot of people, and especially during the unique time of our pandemic, it could, could have proved especially problematic. Uh, Josh, you mentioned that the Republicans in that instance were the ones who were kind of making it so that the government went into the shutdown. And I think that, that highlights something that ties back to what Marcelo mentioned, where people take it out on the party in power when they go to the polls. And I think that there is a certain amount of justified reasoning behind that, because when we had the shutdown during Trump's administration, it was the Republicans who were trying to get a specific agenda through that caused it to go into shutdown. And now we're seeing that with the party in power as the Democrats trying to leverage the Build Back Better. It's an interesting predicament that politicians kind of work themselves into because they're trying to leverage what they can to get through what their constituents have wanted. But the problem is nobody has enough of a majority to cleanly get that through. And then the opposing party obviously is not in favor of that agenda. They were put into office to vote against it. So then what winds up happening is we get into these shutdowns. It's essentially like a political game of chicken where, you know, both parties <laughs> yeah. know that they're going to pass this. They know it's going to be raised no matter what. It's just what can I also get through while pushing as many of the bounds as possible. So like the debt ceiling originally, it came around in like World War One because Congress got really tired of the Treasury coming to Congress and saying, we would like to raise money for this. Uh, we need to pay for it. So essentially, Congress is like, here, here's a credit card, right? They gave it to like a like a 16-year-old kid and said, just do with it what you want. We'll worry about it later. Except Congress doesn't age out. So like it, the later is just continuously happening. So everyone now has access to this credit card. And now it's just getting pushed and pushed as it has been for the last you know 90 years since World War One. When they're talking about raising the debt ceiling here, we're not talking about borrowing more money from other countries. And in these contexts, we're basically saying that credit card that the Treasury was given that the Fed has, we're basically saying, hey, can we go, you know, get a raise on, on the credit card? Can we get a, you know, in the same way your credit card has a limit, you know, that, you know, you can max out your credit card. They're basically, you know, saying, hey, can I get a, a raise on how much we're allowed to, you know, do here? So this isn't even necessarily related to how we borrow and lend money to other countries, but how we're managing what monies our government has to spend for its internal programs and internal mechanisms. I think that's a good analogy of like the credit card limit, because that's also where the trust from other nations and how we delegate and like borrow and lend money to other nations comes in, right? Like if you're not paying off your credit card bill, why would your parents give you $20? It, it, it's something like that, that shows that, you know, the trust in, and that's what leads to those global recessions that we really don't want to happen if this doesn't get raised. Interesting comparison with the, <laughs> with the children, because, you know, sometimes it does seem like Congress are the children and then they're taking out $2 trillion. Uh, <laughs> what's going to happen here? I, I'm assuming this is going to pass. 
pass because for Mansion Cinema or the Republicans to cause it to not go through, personally, I think would do more damage to their political careers than it would do good because all they're saying is, sure, raise the debt. What that allows then is for them to have the discussion about Build Back Better because there is a line of credit that would theoretically fund it at that point because what will happen next is they will go and they will pass legislation that will say, we're going to pay for this debt that we've taken out, this funding to go forward through this, this, and this form of taxes. And those will go to these people, these places, these corporations, et cetera, to fund it. So the Republicans are not going to see, um, it's not like they're agreeing to this if they vote to raise it or even if they just abstain. Personally, I think all of them will probably just vote against it, vote party lockstep. But I don't think that if it came down to it and Mansion and Cinema decided to vote against it, that the Republicans would let it go down in flames. I, I don't see that. I don't know what you guys think. Yeah, I think... And I think it's just, you know, you kind of all pointed out before that some version of the debt ceiling raised will happen because while the immediate impacts are bad, the long-term impacts of it are catastrophic. And I think that serves us as even as a kind of a good stepping point of moving into of why we want to avoid doing this and even kind of do the differentiation between defaulting on our debt and going into a government shutdown because the debt ceiling is not being raised. Because the primary reason that all of these different programs get shuttered and all of the impacts we're about to talk about happen is so that we can keep paying our international loans and keep the critical aspects of our government online while we figure out how to fund everything else that's kind of secondary to the stability of the nation. I think the idea of, you know, being in debt to me is just very, it's very American. You know, like I, I moved here when I was 17 and, and like, I know that we're in debt, you know, every country's in debt in some way, but you know, there's a bus stop near my apartment right now that has like a big counter, like that has like US debt limit. And it's like in real time and it keeps going up. And every time I see it, I'm like, this number's too big. And like the, the fact that this is connected to the idea that the government could shut down, to me, it just, it makes sense. I guess now, but you know, a few years ago, I was like, I think it's insane that the government could just shut down and like just stop working because they can't agree on how much money to spend. Should we transition into a discussion over kind of the impacts? Because I think that it's important that we understand and that we talk about who's affected, how are they affected? Uh, because you've got domestically the people who work for the federal government. If it shuts down, they're affected. If we were to default, then you know, obviously, there's international implications. So, do we want to start with the <laughs> the consequences of default? or do we want to talk about the consequences of a government shutdown? I think we should start with the shutdown because that's what is where we realistically might have to deal with. And then we can get into the scare tactics of the default of, you know, what is the worst case scenario? Because the default beyond even the shutdown, like as all you know, we've seen before, people will let the government go into shutdown. But I will firmly and positively and reassuringly tell everyone the U.S. government will never default on its loans. Yeah. Um, no, no president, no, no Senate minority, majority you know, no Speaker of the House or, you know, Minority Leader of the House will ever let the United States default on its debts. Many have let the government shut down, though. Um, yep. <laughs> it's, it's essentially a free vacation for these guys. One of the things that is unfortunate with the government shutdown is like lots of people lose their jobs. So zoos, parks, the military members, they, they stop getting paid. They still have to go to work and like do their job contractors for, you know, the different agencies that the United States has, whether it's the EPA, CIA, intelligence, defense, economy, whatever, they, they get laid off. Like you're told to go home, you don't come back. And then you have to go through the rehiring process and stuff like that again. You know, 
we see like furloughs can hit like 62% of employees at the CDC, which current climate, that's a, not a, the best thing that could happen right now in the middle of a global pandemic. But that's, that's I think, one of the major things. Government is one of the largest employers in the world. Uh, a lot of people lose their jobs. And that's one of the worst case scenarios of this. Could you say a little more about people who have to go to work but don't get paid? Like to me, that sounds more like losing your paycheck instead of like losing your job, because yeah. you still have the responsibilities of going there, right? Yeah. So uh, I grew up in a military family, and you know we lived through a couple of the government shutdowns. So like my dad, right? If the government shuts down, he doesn't get paid on the first of the month. Insurance isn't going through things like that. But he still has to go to the gate guards and you know run his job. Now some places they'll get back pay, right? And you still might. Uh, uh, but those are like only like uniformed service members that I, from my experience that I've seen get that. It's not like just normal federal employees. Like, so the US military, they have millions of contractors who are basically civilians who do the same job as military members, but they're paid more. They just get let off. Like in your contract, it's like if the government shuts down your SOL, you have to go find other work. And you can reapply and you and you have like a, a expediated process to get back. But those people are like let out of jobs. And, you know, we've seen it last an entire month. We've seen it last longer, too. It is interesting to me that the people who put us in the position of a shutdown still get paid. But the people who are working to actually... In my opinion, it's no secret. I don't think that there's much to be said about Congress people in general. Like, I just, I don't think that they contribute much to society personally. I think that they get way more out of it and it becomes more of a leeching system because, I mean, if you're literally paid to take a vacation, then what's the incentive to not allow this to go into a shutdown to better your party and your political career? Like, they're literally at that point standing on the shoulders of the people who are working for real in real jobs. But I think it's very interesting to as, me. As much as I would love to jump in the bandwagon of like government bad. <laughs> You know, like which we do all the time. Sure. I, you know, I hate, I, I hate the federal government as much as anyone else, but I do think that there's ways around it. Like, like you said, you know, if the government shuts down, they don't get paid. They're probably in a much better position to afford this, and especially could potentially give them a financial incentive to not let this happen in the first place. Because we know it's a part of the game. You know, like Josh said, is the game of chicken. Um, but obviously, that they let it go this far indicates that they're more than willing. And as with many things that we have seen, I feel like this is happening more more frequently like i think it's a little surreal to to hear josh say like yeah I mean, my family has lived through two government shutdowns it was like a couple it's like this happened more than once what it's like really and so to me it just seems like you know, the frequency might be getting a little, a little too extreme from, from my taste. And I think part of the even more pressing concern about when this happens and how we regard when our when the Congress, the president, whoever the responsible agent is for in the political scene to cause this from happen is the people most affected are the careers, you know, who work at governmental agencies. And while everyone rails about, you know, governmental, you know, whether it's the regulations or whether it's the laws or just its existence or the particular politicians, there are millions of people and thus millions of families who their nine to five job, their their office cubicle, you know, farm job is critical stuff to keep, you know, our country working, keeping things serviced. And these are people who are true, like public servants. And the fact that their job isn't about making money or capital or, you know, I mean, they're getting paid and they're taking care of the family, but it's not some entrepreneurial enter enterprise. These are people who have dedicated their lives to working to, you know, work in the government to serve their fellow people who are suffering some of the worst of the consequences of when the government fails to act in this way. And so it really is a disservice to a lot of not only like our service members who aren't getting paid, who could still be expected to go risk their life and be deployed and not 
getting paid, but to the people who day to day also, you know, give their lives in an office space, in a cubicle farm to process our passports, to process firearm applications. These are things that might not, you know, happen when the government shutdown is going on, or if they are, these people aren't getting paid. And there's something to be said about that, of of our government's kind of disregard of the lifelong public servant who comprise our federal government. Yeah, little Josh, I was curious what that is like to live through. Like, do you, or I mean, you didn't work for the government, but you lived in a family who did. So like, is the plan then to just make sure that you set aside enough money that, you know, if the government goes into a shutdown, people are prepared? Do you just hope it doesn't happen? Like what, I'm curious what the, the process is there or what it might be for people who have a very real risk of this happening to them at a, a given moment. So yeah, uh, both my parents served in the military for um, over 20 years in the Air Force. So it was something that like it affected the entire household in a way that, you know, paychecks aren't coming in, right? You still need money to go to school, get clothes and stuff. And we were blessed, you know, my parents, they they managed their money well, but it hurts in ways that are more long-term because even if we have enough saved up for like a month or so, there are a lot of families in the military who don't. And a lot of those in the military are young kids, you know, they're 18 to 24 years old, they might have never held money before, right? So they might not understand that like, hey, if the government shut down, I lose I lose pay, right? And I see a lot of these kids, you know, they go out and they buy a brand new car. They buy a charger as soon as they enlist in the army. They buy a brand new house. The bank does not care whether or not the government is shut down and you're not getting paid. Your mortgage is still due. Your car payment is still due. Your insurance is still due. And those are the more personal impacts that I think we see is that, you know, we, we make do, right? It's something that, you know, once you're older... It, we were lucky enough to, you know, work through it. But I know people who like, they just can't pay their mortgage and, and things like that, which is harmful. And I think this leads into something that, you know, Josh sort of mentioned is like, the impact of this is, I think the distrust in the federal government to pay your bills leads to a less satisfied workforce, which, you know, a lot of people after they get out of the military or whether they're in federal service, right? They're fighting off like hundreds of thousands of dollars from private companies, right? Like when my dad retired, security was a big thing, right? And people were like, hey, you know, you're almost out. We, we could offer you a six-figure salary. And he was like, well, no, I still have to serve, right? There's no incentive to then go back and do service after in the federal government if you're getting those better offers elsewhere that are more secure and more stable. So I think this is just removing trust in the federal government to pay your bills, which is kind of like the point of working for a place, right? Like I know there's the, I want to serve, I want to help people. But like at the end of the day, you have to be able to feed yourself. Could I even like expand that even, even more? Because I feel like the issue of trust comes up a lot when we talk about the government. Uh, there's people that, you know, yeah, I'm looking at you, Ryan. Like the, the people that don't really trust the federal government or, you know, government in general. And I feel like this might be a little microcosm of like, you know, bad decisions, taking a long time, figuring out money, bad management of money, corruption, like a lot of like little things that sort of like merge together into like the government literally not working. And then people outside being like, are they going to have to pay for this? Like, is this really how it's, how it's supposed to work? So I feel like a lot of people end up being dissatisfied. And I think the government shut down and all of the conversations that comes around this sort of like exemplify why some people are just, you know, so tired and frustrated. And I understand, you know, if I worked with the government, if I worked for any company and they just stopped paying me, but still asked me to go, I wouldn't be too happy either. And it's not even, it's not an option, right? Like, I think that's the funniest thing. If my company stops paying me and I don't go into work, 
fine, I'll, I'll go find another place to work. They can't force me in. But in the military, well, you're going to jail. Like you're going to go to a military tribunal. You're going to have be court-martialed for those decisions because, you know, you sign the contract of your life away to, you know, serve the nation, not get paid. So they don't, they really don't care about things like that. People's politics get in the way of other people's lives in, in situations like government shutdowns. I think that's important to remember what you just said, little Josh, which was that politics gets in the way of people's lives. Like that, that's why we do this show is to humanize the people who hold these beliefs because it's very, very easy to say, oh, such and such group has done this and such and such group has done that. And it can be true. But at the same time, at the end of the day, the decisions that are made by these people affect real people. And the people who make these decisions are real people. Like, I, I think that it's just very easy to fall into this idea of, you know, thinking in the abstract. Like, you know, Marcel said, I, I hate the government. <laughs> my To clarify my stance on that, like, it, it, it's true uh, to an extent. But really, I just, this is why I'm in favor of smaller governments, because it is more accountable and more able, to, in my opinion, to adequately fit the needs of the area that they're connected to. Federal government has the ability to have broad sweeping benefits. It also has the ability to have broad sweeping harm. And so it's kind of like a, I mean, it's, it's very much a double-edged sword there where it can have positive and negative effects. I think it's like Josh was saying though, it's, it's important to remember at the end of the day, it's these people's lives, their livelihood. If they don't show up, not only could they be court-martialed and have like immediate penalties, you can be dishonorably discharged. That follows you as you try to get employed for the rest of your life. Like there are long and short-term consequences that affect people that, I mean, I'll be honest, uh, until recently, I didn't really know a lot about, you know, government shutdowns and the impact. So if I was an 18-year-old kid who had signed up for the military, I certainly wouldn't have thought about that. So people get involved and have the potential to be impacted when maybe they didn't even realize what they were getting into. Especially like it's a timing thing, right? Like I, I think of, you know, 20 years ago, you know, there really weren't as many government shutdowns as there are within the past 10 years, right? So people who serve for longer periods of time, you know, you, you kind of learn to trust it a little bit more then that's kind of like yanked out. One of the bigger things though that I, I think we should mention about the government shutdowns is like what happens to like federal programs that are not just like the military, Medicare, Medicaid, those are much more widespread than the military, I think. You know, I think those are the more civilian aspects. And I think, you know, that's probably what those in Congress care more about because those are the people that are going to be like, oh, you know, my grandma can't get insulin or something. So I think those programs are also a major hit that we might want to touch on. Yeah. And that highlights part of the strength of the Social Security Administration Act and, and it's been that particular agency and how it operates its own funds and remains fairly well self-solvent through the taxes that collects. So some of our kind of welfare net would keep in place through, you know, the Social Security Administration. But that's because everyone, you know, if you look at your paycheck, there's a special Social Security tax you pay and along with some other, you know, special welfare taxes you pay. And so those programs, can keep going, but for a lot of the programs that are funded through normal legislation that just adds on to government spending or has some tax modification along with it, if there's not some like special tax or other special unique way of funding it, then it is going to be in part of kind of what gets shut down. The example of this, like our national parks, when the government shuts down, you may not be able to go into Yellowstone because the park rangers aren't there to keep, you know, it open to the public. And the park rangers aren't just there as like, you know, law enforcement officers. They do a great deal of things. Like you don't want people hiking and getting lost in Yellowstone and they're not being park rangers to go and rescue them. Because that's like a majority of what I'm willing to bet park rangers end up like doing all day besides like flagging poachers. So there's aspects of 
of our government that play out in a lot of it. The Eisenhower interstate system managed and run by the federal government is terrible in a lot of places and it gets worked on slowly in a lot of places. And construction sites that are being funded by federal dollars to work on interstates can cease operations while the government's in shutdown. And then that's why maybe that construction site is just sitting there empty for another month is who knows what's going on with the funding for it, you know, especially if there was a shutdown happening. And so there's an impact on the workers, but there's also an impact felt by all of the Americans as the government who's taken on a lot of responsibility to do a lot of things comes to a, a grinding, screeching halt and things can, you know, start to fray and at the edges and come unglued a little bit. Something that's, I think, kind of fun about that is so talking about like just the federal government, but also like the responsibility that they have compared to like state governments is more, but their burden is less, if that makes sense. Like state and local governments, they don't have the economic ability to run fiscal deficits. They can't just borrow unlimited money. They have to work with what they have and make those hard choices, which is why I think looking at state governments, right, you do have some state governments that are rough, but you don't see them shutting down and kind of just like making it so that things just completely halt, which I think is an important thing that we have on some level. And, you know, looking at some states now, some states are larger than the 13 colonies combined back when, you know, we first started making budgets and stuff like the scale of these things are very large on either the state or the federal level. Well, I think um, another reason we don't see this happen at the state level as often as a lot of state governments have particular legislation in place that either demands a balanced budget be passed as a part of the legislative chamber and that can just be done through a standing law. I think some states have it as a constitutional amendment. I want to say they tried to do that in Tennessee. I don't know if it has been done completely yet or not, but I know it's been something on the agenda of the legislators. And if they haven't gotten it as an amendment, it's definitely on the books as a law that Tennessee has to have a balanced budget. The government isn't allowed to pass a budget that forces it into debt borrowing. Now, does Tennessee government occasionally take on debt to help fund a special project? Yeah. But then that means in the next year's balanced budget, plans to pay back and how to work with that debt have to be part of the budget. And that's something our federal government doesn't lack. There's no requirement for a balanced budget. Um, and as I point out, you know, we had one under Clinton for a little bit, but for the most part of the past 40, 50, you know, growing on 50 years now, the federal government has not been able to balance its budget and any kind of realistic manner. The history of like the debt count really going up started with Ronald Reagan's military spending and tax cuts coming in at the same time. And, you know, and it's always that kind of mix of balance of trying to pay for things and trying to not pay for things because a lot of the times you'll see the debt number skyrocket up under Republican administrations as they pass their tax cuts, but they will not correspond those tax cuts with program cuts. And so our debt skyrockets, like the debt climbed much faster under Trump than under Obama because Obama got the taxes up a little bit, even if he did increase spending, but then Trump further increased spending while also lowering taxes. I think another interesting point is like the debt to GDP. I think most people, if we have a high GDP, people are working like wages are high, probably have less of a worry of a higher debt because they feel like we can pay it off. 1960, about 52%. 1980, it was it dropped all the way down to 34% of like a federal debt to GDP ratio. Uh, 2000, it was 55%. So it got back up. Right now, it's 126%. So with that, I think that's one of the reasons why we're feeling this weight of debt so much more because the GDP isn't 
keeping up with our inflation and with our debt that we're having right now. Uh, to the point between the Joshes, I think that this is, again, what's going to be taken out in the polls and why I think that there's a bit of a scare for Democrats on who's going to turn out and which way they're going to vote. Because under Trump, it's true that he increased the debt. It's true that he ran a lot of things, but people are oblivious to them, right? When Obama raises taxes, people feel that. When Trump raises the credit card limit or the spending of the government, people don't feel that on a day-to-day basis. What do they feel? Well, right now, they feel gas prices are up. They feel that jobs are down. They feel that the pandemic is not under control. Like There's a lot of things that they experience personally. And what they do then is they attribute that to those who are in charge. So even if the party in charge is not necessarily responsible for what these people are feeling, it's still going to be taken out on them. And that's why we saw that, uh, well, basically the first term of the last three presidents, you've seen a massive swing in the way that the other branches of government, um, the House and the Senate, wind up getting voted in, right? Because we saw that Obama came in as one party between the president, the Congress branches, Trump did the same thing, and Biden did the same thing. And for the first primary, or the first uh, midterm elections after Obama, the House and Senate swung the other way. Same thing happened when Trump was in office. I feel like we'll probably see this again under Biden, but it's because people feel the immediate effects. They don't care about things like the debt. They don't care about things like ceilings, defaults, and all of that because it's not tangible to them. It seems to be something that they'll take out on them, though, when they feel those effects. So, like, really, I feel like it boils down to how well can a party make the lives of people easier, regardless of what they do. Like, if they can disconnect those, I don't think they'll feel those ramifications. Personally. Having an, an educated voter base, and this is, you know, not talking about one party or the other, but, and it is a throwback to one of the first things I said in this show is that one of the first things I learned when I started learning about political communication is that most people really don't have the time. And it's not their fault that like all of the complexities and all of the like different little details on how the government works and how the debt works and how, you know, the economy works, like all of those things really are not really important in most people's daily lives. Like if you don't talk about it for fun, like some people here in this call, or you don't work in it, there's really no point in knowing this. There's, you know, and then the state of the economy is a given that most people are considerably more concerned about, you know, their next paycheck as they should, rather than, you know, what's going on in the government and in the White House. Like it, it really doesn't really matter to them. And so, like you said, Ryan, that's why most people are like, they are not going to notice in like our exports going up by like, I don't know, 10%, but they are going to notice their gas prices going up five. And and that's the reality of it. All right. It's time for uh, my non-regularly scheduled STEM slander. I, I think as part of what Marcelo pointed out, you know, why having an educated voter base is so important, but also that highlights of like where our state and local governments in particular have failed because civics should be taught K through 12, same as math and English, you know, and it should be taught alongside of history. It should taught, you know, we should make these efforts to, you know, make it clear to help our citizens understand. And it's reflective of our education system if we aren't delivering upon that. And, you know, you can say, you know, you can go you know, to college and, you know, you can get your bachelor's degree in political science, but that's a pretty high bar of expectation for people. And also, you know, people shouldn't have to either invest that amount of time or, you know, not specialize in what they want to specialize in at college because that their high school and middle school systems failed to teach them about the way our government works 
and functions. Now, why does that relate to STEM slander? Is because when you want those better mathematics and engineering programs, do you know what they cut? They cut your humanities. I forgot which university it was. I want to say it's Purdue. This year, um, they, they're not accepting any more applicants to the English program to Purdue. You know, the online writing lab that everyone references when you went through undergrad, those people, that university is going to stop admitting graduate students because the money is being taken away from, not being taken away, but not being provided to have more citizenship lines. And so eventually it's probably going to lead to the shuttering of the graduate program um, there at Purdue for their English department. And a lot of our current fascination in our education system has been STEM, STEM, STEM. And a lot of the price and where that money came from to build those things came from history, English, philosophy, communication programs that teach and deal with a lot of civics as we focus on how to build a whole bunch of great engineers. We may have lost our way to have our government through, you know, even if we can engineer some fancy things. Going through political science and the, the fun it is, I don't think that just teaching civics is enough. People actually have to be interested in wanting to do civics. And you have to be able to take complex topics and break it down for people who are young enough to actually understand, right? So like I remember my first college class, it was uh, American national government. And I remember sitting there and the professor like ranting at the front. And he said, I, I bet some of you guys don't even know the vice president. And I was like, this guy is a boomer. This guy does not know. And I was like, obviously we know. And I leaned over to the girl next to me. And this is in 2017. And I said, hey, who's the vice president of the United States? And I remember her looking back at me and saying, Mitt Romney, with without <laughs> a bit of hesitation in her voice. And I thought, okay, I'm going to pay attention to this guy in class now because of that. And so I thought, you know, looking at this, uh, we can teach people how many senators there are, how many congressmen there are. What we need to start changing civics to do is what do these agencies do and what do we allow them to do? Because I think we focus too much on like, what is the formation? What is the structure of the government? And we build these like Lego blocks of a government without telling you how it works together. We put all the car parts together together, and then we don't teach you how to drive it. And we don't teach people how to effectively use the government to get the change that they want. I'm going to add to that. Um, notice the language used by both of you, which was civics and social studies. They're not the same thing, but our school switched from civics to social studies. Social studies is so abstract and, and it is doing exactly what Lil Josh is criticizing here. Civics is supposed to teach you what is the function of governments? What are the enumerated powers? What is the constitution? The core concepts that people need to know so that when the government tries to go against them, they can say, uh-uh, and then they know how to vote. And then they have what Marcelo was talking about, which is the educated voter base. Because now when we talk about the educated voter base, we tend to refer to the collegial education that they have. And, and that's incorrect as well. And I know that none of us on this call were using it that way. I'm not trying to say that you were. But usually when they say, oh, how educated is the population? They're not talking about, do you understand who is doing what, where, why, and, and how? It's talking about, well, how far did you make it in school? And I think that the switch in American education from civics, which taught those core concepts, to social studies, which is a little bit more squishy and doesn't teach those same things as part of the problem. And then uh, for Josh Hendricks, I see what you're saying about English losing its funding and, and the, the social sciences and things like that. As a social scientist, I am with you on being at the griping end of not receiving the funding. I think one issue that makes that a little bit more complex is that when we see who is best employed, has the most transferable skills and makes the most salary, it's STEM. So when a university has a million people going for English and then they have a very low job placement, that hurts the university's stats, which then incentivizes them to shutter something like English. So I think it's important to 
remember that there is kind of this balancing act that gets done there because I love social studies. I've also, you know, or the social sciences. I have, I have accepted. I will not make what a STEM major engineer makes. But the university, when everyone is going for one and there's an imbalance, they'll find ways to balance it. And I think that is also important to remember. Even some of the idea of how we pit sometimes funding the humanities and social sciences against STEM is somewhat a bit problematic because they're not mutually exclusive because we could just be talking about better, more holistic funding for our education system because they're not mutually exclusive. But there's has been a, you know, a growing trend of state and, you know, state governments not funding their universities or increasing the university funding as, you know, other rising costs like, you know, price of labor and inflation go up, they'll just keep the university budget the same. And so the budget, the university is basically feeling the same impacts of inflation that your everyday uh, consumer is as well. So it obviously does get into a lot of uh, complex, you know, of balancing of all of that out. But I think as like kind of of what where we choose to shine the highlight on of like what's really important for people to walk away from is because we could have, you know, a ton of great engineers making a whole bunch of great amount of money, but maybe then we don't have a government that works that well. And maybe that's what we have today. I think to sort of take a little bit of that and put it into a different focus is we should also I think we focus a little bit too much on college as someone who's been to college and is now in a degree that field that is not what I studied in college. It's definitely something that we have 12 years of education for these kids, right? 12, 13 years. It can be fit in there and still provide those like concrete workers. I think we look at college and we're, and we think it's supposed to teach everything. And a lot of times we're leaving, like that's a different conversation for a different day, but I, I'm start, it starts to look like high school and middle school and elementary school is being left behind in the American education system, especially in terms of like government and what it should teach you. And I think part of that is, you know, they don't want to teach like things like, Oh, you know, the federal government, you know, on multiple occasions has done like horrible things to people. Right. And they think it's too, it's too much to, for people to take, but moving that education to a different grade, I think would help alleviate that because college isn't for everyone. I agree. I'm not a STEM Lord. I, I was when I started college, I, I used to be a computer science STEM major. STEM Lord. <laughs> Put that in your uh, bio. <laughs> former <absolutely>. STEM Lord. <laughs> the former, former aspiring STEM Lord, probably. When the economy is like only like AI based, I should probably switch into STEM, to be honest. I think we should definitely increase, like Josh said, the little Josh, on the like on the idea of trying to educate people. And like, obviously you can't, what I want to emphasize is that you cannot expect people, everyone to care equally. Like not everyone's top of mind is like, oh, I wonder, you know, what the house passed today. Like I work on stuff like that. So I, they pay me to do that. But if you don't work on that, how, how could I blame someone? And I feel like something I have to remind myself, it's like, you know, if somebody doesn't know like who the vice president is, you know, should you? Sure. But you know, does it affect your daily life? I mean, probably not. I think it should. You should go out and vote. But if, you know, if you're too busy because, you know, the economy is crumbling, then, you know, you do you and, and hopefully, you know, best of luck. Before we transition to hot takes, I just want to say that I think it is amusing that the people who are more interested in non-debt things, which is all of us because debt gets a little bit, in, you know, a little bit intricate and a little bit boring. Uh, I do find it interesting that we shifted away from that just gradually, probably without even realizing it. And then we started talking about education. <laughs> but all right, uh, we will be right back with our hot takes. And we're back. So I'll kick it over to Marcelo. My hottest take today is one that, you know, you're not going to hear me say this often, but the government shut down and like, especially that that conversation really makes me lose my faith in the government. Not that I had much to begin with, but you know, 
I had a little bit and, you know, it's it's more than nothing. And I feel like when I see all of these people discuss, you know, how are we going to spend this money? And like, I'm of the opinion that you just, you know, spend more. Like, you know, I'm all for government spending, but you're making my advocacy harder because when I say, you know, the government is good, you should support it. And then they turn around and they like, you know, point out the headlines and it's a government shutdown, you know, everyone in crisis, nobody knows what they're doing. That to me hurts because you're not only hurting yourself, but you're also hurting me and that like, you know, I want to love you. I want to be supporting you, but you're making it harder for me. I, that that would be my that would be my take. I know we're it's not going to be the end. We're not going to default. We're just going to pass it, and people will start still be using this as a bargaining chip as they have been using everything else. So it's just time to turn to the next page. No, I, I agree with Marcelo for my hot take. We're not going to default. Uh, I did see a funny joke the other day that said that Republicans vow to be fiscally responsible the moment a Democrat is back in office as the president. I think that, you know, this is easy to flip-flop between parties and blame the party for what's going on. And, you know, the vast majority of the time, I think it is their fault. Like, if you're the party in power, then you have the levers. And there are obstacles and there are complications, but you do have the levers and you should be held accountable. I think that it's important from a federal level. I'm not going to say that it's important that we balance the budgets, but I would be interested to see if we could get more incentives and accountability for the federal level to have their budgets balanced and not run a political game that effectively holds the American people and their jobs as hostages and collateral damage. Because if the government shuts down, the next time it shuts down, I think this time we're safe. But the next time it shuts down, those are real people who are affected. Those are real people who lose their jobs or those are real people who have to go through the rehiring process or those are real people who have to go to work because they're considered essential workers and yet they don't get paid. Maybe they get back pay, but like there is a real financial crisis that these people can be facing. And to me, it's also interesting that the federal government gets to tell these people, sorry, we can't pay you because we're in shutdown. And yet those people can't go to the store or the mortgages and say, sorry, I can't pay you. We're in a shutdown. Like to me, it would also be something that I'd like to see that if the federal government is going to have um, these people be held hostage as collateral damage, then I don't want the federal government. I want the politicians to pay for these people personally like that. That is probably the hottest take I'll give is if you are going to be a part of the organization that harms these people in this way for your political agenda as you tack more and more on preventing it from going through, then I think that you need to be held responsible as a public servant. And I think that personally, that would also weed out some of the people who are in this for the money and the fame instead of actually service. The third thing that I'll say is I think that we've touched on the importance of teaching civics instead of just social studies. The educated voter is essential, not educated as in they have higher education, but rather they understand the intricacies of government. They understand when the government is acting outside their enumerated powers. They understand when things are unconstitutional. They understand what power they as people and as states and individuals hold. And I think that we're going to need to see a bit more of that education before we see that downstream showing up in offices. And lastly, we've talked a lot about how people don't have the time to sift through all the political garbage and all of the news and just just for the, the sake of time, if not for the lack of interest. And if that's you, I have a solution. Check out our show. <laughs> uh, the self shameless self plug here. That is why we started this show is to have nuanced conversations to sift through for you, give you the major points in an hour or less every week. So if that's you, check us out. That's my final hot take. I think, and kind of to extend Ryan's hot take a little bit, you know, we've switched from this teaching of civics to social science, and it isn't necessarily about making 
it clear how the government works. It's one thing to understand how, you know, one of my favorite classes I took in my political science minor was the history of the United States presidency, which looked at how the laws and the powers of the presidency changed from person to from held it. And not just the people behind it, but how the function, the mechanical oper, you know, thing that is the presidency changed throughout the history of America. And it was such an interesting class because you still got to see how these different, you know, roles and actions that the president is and isn't allowed to take the rise of the executive order presidency that really started with Obama, you know, facing congressional deadlock and issues like that we've seen. But I think one of the main challenges in teaching even civics is not even just teaching the mechanics of the government, but teaching how the mechanics of the government do impact our day-to-day lives. Because it is easy sometimes to feel like it may not explicitly matter if you know whether or not the vice president is because it's not going to affect you on a day-to-day basis. But what the federal government is doing affects everyone around the whole world, even realistically, on a day-to-day basis through his actions. And part of teaching people about government and why to and why to care about these things and why to care about the debt and why to care about what the government's doing is how and how is it's doing is to show them how it impacts it. And I think part of, you know, uh, joining Ryan's also like shameless self-plug here, I think that's tried, what we tried to do, how this affects our service members, how this affects our, you know, civil service people who dedicate their lives to essentially helping us as individuals who are doing other things, but who these people's jobs and their working lives have been given towards helping and enabling us. And so there's always a human element and a lot of the words we talk about in politics, one of the things I always, whenever, like I'm, you know, we're at a debate tournament and I'm listening to my student prep and I'll hear them like write out an argument and I'll stop them and go, there's a lot of death in those words. Because a lot of the times we don't really materialize the impacts um, about like these larger social, scientific, societal level things we talk about. And I think it's a lesson I always try to teach my um, debaters. I think it's a lesson we should also try to teach Congress is that when we're talking about people in the lives that they did not live and die so that you could have evidence for your case. They were human. They had families who loved them and cherished them. They had people they loved and cherished. They were members of communities. They're not evidence for your argument. They're humans and they matter. And if anything, that will always be my hottest take is that to be human is enough. Wait on you, little Josh. Daddy. <laughs> all right. So my hottest take is one that we've looked at that we I think we've all agreed on here is that this is just a game of chicken that everyone agrees that like this is going to be passed. This They're not going to let something like this happen. And I think the precedent that it sets that you can hold something as as important as our union and how the payments go out and how the world markets work for your own political gain is the biggest fear in my eyes. Because when we look at the future, there's nothing stopping a future Congress or a future Senate from doing this and using like drastic structural change to our government and using the budget as as the levy to get that. And I think that's something that I wish we would have talked about. I wish I thought about it sooner. But like, it, it's a, it's a real fear that they are willing to do this, that they are able to do this, and that they are actively doing this and hurting American citizens in the process. And looking at your senators and looking at your congressmen, call them, let them know that they suck and that they are actively hurting you and working against your interests. And watch the show. <laughs> yes, watch That's this show. <laughs> All right. Uh, Lil, Lil Josh, yeah. thank you yeah. for joining us today. Uh, it was Thanks a pleasure having you on. 
held up to the standards I set for him. Good job. All right. Well, I'm sure you find yourself somewhere between the liars. Join us next week. We continue to strive to be here at noon central. We've done it two weeks in a row now after the holiday season. Hopefully that keeps up. Uh, We'll catch you back here next week. Goodbye for now.